Hi, this is Bill Whalen, the host of Goodfellows. Thanks for listening to the audio version of the show, but we wanted to let you know that Goodfellows is primarily a video production, and you're missing a lot of extra features by only listening to our show. Give it a look by going to hoover.org forward slash Goodfellows to see what you're missing. Thanks. As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. And if one looks throughout the history of our country and other free countries, it is the latter category that tend to be the difficult ones. It's Monday, November 27th, 2023, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today, and I'm proud to report that I'm joined by not one, but two, but all three of our Goodfellows. And that would be, of course, the distinguished historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, geostrategist and resident optimist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. Gentlemen, good to see you. Uh, we're going to do two segments today. We're going to go to the Middle East and talk about what comes next when the truce finally ends. Uh, we're doing this on Monday the 27th, so this is the fourth of the four-day truce, but it's been extended for two more days. But first, we turn our attention to U.S. politics. And joining us for that conversation, a return guest on Goodfellows. You know him as the architect of the Bush 43 presidency, political columnist for the Wall Street Journal, a self-described political hack. We welcome back Carl Rove. Carl, great to see you. Good to be back with you, or at least most of you. Most of you. So, Carl, I'd like to believe that I begin this I conversation. Master laughed because he knew it was directed at him. But, uh... <laughs> but by the way, should we uh, uh, let's vote on this? Should we ask McMaster to stand up and uh, show us the complete ensemble he has on today? Or oh, please, under stand no up, circumstances. Under no okay. circumstances. All right, I am. I am in Southern California, and I'm going. I am going to uh, to go uh, paddleboarding immediately after. Immediately after uh, Goodfellas. So. Is this it's just a, designed to make me feel bad? <laughs> <laughs> because it's working. <laughs> Neil, life is about choices, and you chose to chose to go to England. So, Carl, here we are, 49 days out from Iowa, and I want to read something that you wrote in the Wall Street Journal in early November. Quote, neither party's front runner will be easily dislodged, but if no changes are made, Americans will get the worst dumpster fire of a campaign in history. Um I'd like to amend the idea of dumpster fire, Carl, and throw this idea at you. It's not maybe a dumpster fire. Maybe it's a tire fire in this regard, like something that burns for years and years. Uh, for everyone who is apoplectic about the choices of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, they probably felt the same way in 2020, and they probably felt the same way in 2016. So, Carl, is 2024 unique in this choice, or are we just in a particularly rough stretch of political history in America? Well, I think we're in a rough stretch, uh, you know, where where the, both parties are animated more by an animus towards their opponents than they are by any positive or optimistic vision for the future of the country that their leaders are offering. And uh, but, you know, we're also 49 days from the Iowa caucuses. And, and one thing we've learned is lots of strange things can happen in the Iowa caucuses. Uh, you know, I think at this point in 2016, it was a Ben Carson who is ahead. Right. Uh, and Ted Cruz won Iowa. Uh, Howard Dean. Howard Dean. Yeah. Uh, you know, at this point in 2008, uh, Hillary Clinton was far and away and Barack Obama caught her. Uh, my, my favorite and what I think is sort of the model for if there is going to be something that happens differently. Uh, I think the model is 1984 Democrats. 
we forget back then that uh, everybody knew that Walter Mondale was going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. All the polls showed it way ahead in the mm-hmm. mid to high 50s at this point nationwide. Uh, the final poll before the Iowa caucuses was 49% for Mondale, tied for second with 13 points each were Jesse Jackson and Senator John Glenn. Fourth place was Reuben Askew, the former governor of Florida and Carter's trade rep at five, and tied for fifth and sixth were two senators, Alan Cranston, Mr. Nuclear Freeze, and Gary Hart, New Democrat of Colorado. And uh, on on caucus night, Mondale nailed it, 48.9% of the vote, but there was a surprise. Second place finish, Gary Hart, New Democrat. And uh, for the next eight days, all we talked about was the unusual, you know, the tall, lanky, laconic, you know, new Democrat, Atari Democrat from Colorado, Gary Hart. And uh, eight days later in New Hampshire, he upset Walter Mondale and we were off to the races. Mondale begins to fight back on March 11th with a televised debate. He says, every time you talk, I'm reminded of that commercial, where's the beef? When I hear your new ideas, I'm reminded of that ad. Where's the beef? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, ultimately won. But what we forget is that it took until June 5th. Uh, Gary Hart won 27 contests. And on June 5th, he won California, New Mexico and South Dakota. But Mondale won West Virginia and New Jersey and secured the Democratic nomination, clinched it with 21 delegates to spare. Now, my point is, is that unusual thing happened in Iowa that led to an unusual thing in New Hampshire. And if Gary Hart had a better explanation of March and April of what it was to be a new Democrat, an explanation provided eight years later by by a governor from Arkansas, uh, he could have won the nomination from the guy who got it by 21 delegates. So let's see who, let's see if, uh, you know, Trump's making a mistake in my opinion by saying I'm 60 points ahead. No, you're at 43% in Iowa in the latest Iowa poll. You were 42 in August uh, and you're sort of stuck. Uh, six out of 10 Republicans in Iowa are supporting somebody else. And uh, let's see what happens in Iowa. And if, if he comes out with a, you know, 38% and we got somebody at 28%, th- that's going to be the story at the strong second finish. I think Carly's also, Trump's been to Iowa something like 17 times, and I believe DeSantis has been there 130, and he's running the so-called Grassley strategy if you go to all 99 counties. But, you know, the Grassley strategy is familiar. It worked for Ted Cruz. Uh, it worked for uh, Rick Santorum in 2012. But does familiarity, familiarity still work in the Iowa caucuses, Carl, or is these candidates need to be thinking about a new strategy since it is a different candidate with Trump and it's 2024? Yeah, well, they need to realize the most critical part of the Iowa caucus is still to come the next 49 days. Think about that latest Iowa poll, 43 for for, uh, Trump. But if that's 29 of that 43 say, my mind is made up, I'm for Trump, 14 say, I'm open to voting for somebody else. And between August and October, the beginning of October, Nikki Haley went from six to 16. And that's on the basis of two debate performances, the first and second debate. All of the first debate was cooked into that. I think the second debate was literally like a day or two before the 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 the, uh, the poll was fielded. But think about that. 13 million people watched the televised debate. There are going to be 60 million people who vote. And uh, she goes in Iowa from 6 to 16. And my suspicion is probably at 18, 19, 20 today. And mm-hmm. she's got the momentum. Uh, and that's from, you know, Nine minutes out of 90 minutes of the debate was what she occupied. That was a space. So it strikes me that people are out there 
open to doing something else, they got to they got to find out what that something else is. And in Iowa, anybody who's been through Iowa, as I painfully have been through uh, a couple of times, and, and the last time in two thousand, admittedly, they don't they don't make up their minds until the end. Right. They, you know, they want to see you. Uh, the only good news is once they make a decision, they tend to stay stuck, unlike those SOBs in New Hampshire who change their minds about every three or four days. <laughs> we had this guy in 2000 who said, George, I saw you. Yeah, I love you, Mom and Dad. I'm for you. Next time we show up in the state and say, I went and heard John McCain at the Bull Firehouse, and he's doing a hell of a job answering questions. And I hate to tell you, but I'm from John. And next time we show up, he says, you know what? I've been thinking you're the – you're the you're the Republican governor with a Democrat legislature. You've been able to get results. You're the bipartisan guy for you. Son of a bitch. The last time before the vote, he showed up at a thing and said, George, I've decided my finally I'm going to stay stuck. I'm voting for you. And we lose by 19 points. Why couldn't he have stayed with McCain? And maybe some some of that bad karma washed off on McCain. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. In Iowa, they, they stay stuck. Carl Schultz, he knows not just every election in U.S. history, but every single voter in the country. <laughs> just pretty impressive. You're, you're giving us hope on the Republican side, where there is something like 1984, uh, some some good, plausible, well-organized uh, um, candidates. Uh, what about on the Democratic side? That doesn't sound like your 1984 story. No, I think it, I think it is more like uh, 1968. Right. You know, you have the you have the New Hampshire primary, and McCarthy does pretty well. Uh, Johnson wins it. But I mean, it it wasn't the only factor that caused Johnson on the 31st of March to recognize that he was in trouble. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Well, what happens if Dean Phillips gets, you know, I don't know what the number is, 25 percent, 30 percent of the vote in New Hampshire, uh, you know, who it, he's completely he's a he's he's a he's a protest vessel. The only reason he's there is for you to say, you know what, Mr. Biden, with all due respect, don't do this. And, uh, you know, what, 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 how will that enter in? I mean, he's a, he is a pure protest vote. There's no reason to vote for him except to say to, to Biden, step aside. I do know this. I do not think it is an accident that the governor, governors of California, Illinois, and Michigan have all filed federal committees so they can spend federal money and uh, move around the country. I don't think that's an accident, and I don't think it's an accident that the that the uh, governor of California, with his excellent hair and not much else, is doing is doing is focused laser like on making certain that every member of the Biden delegation of the Democratic National Convention from California is a is a Newsom person, because I you know, I think he's betting on this thing coming apart by the time that the Democrats uh, get together in August. August, for God's sake, in Chicago, that they that they might be in a position where the Democrat convention has to decide who the nominee is, and it ain't going to be Joe Biden because he's going to be sidelined for one reason or another. So, Carl, I buy this. I buy this story. I'm, I'm particularly sold on on 1968 because I struggle to see Biden going the distance, and it's clear that certainly amongst the Democrats I talk to, that they're deeply worried about the situation they're in. But let's just go forward and take advantage of your great political insight. Suppose it is Haley Newsom when we finally get to vote November of 2024. Who do you think wins? Uh, well, Haley, because Newsom is the governor of California. And and look, I, I look out my window towards the hills west of Austin, and there are a lot of California expatriates fleeing <laughs> high taxes, unsafe streets, crappy schools, and a nutty state government. And they're coming here by the score, not the score and the hundreds, but the hundreds of thousands. Think about it. California 
every every t- 10 years since its admission as a state in 1850 has gained strength in the United States Congress until the 2020 census. And for the first time since it joined the union, it lost seats in the U.S. House. And that's not because the, the weather's crappy uh, or the restaurant's terrible or the beach is dreadful. And, uh, and it's not because they've seen McMaster out on that surfboard in his, <laughs> in his, in his outfit. It, it's because it's over institution Speedo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Just another 25,000 people are starting to dial their phones and get a band to come and pick them up. Uh, it's because California is, is turned into a parody of a state government. So, but Carl, uh, they, they bring their voting habits with them uh, when they move uh, to Austin. Uh, 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 no, 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 no. Tell me, bro. There was, there was a poll, not not well done, but a, but a poll of people who had moved to Texas and registered to vote since November of 2020. This is before the 2022 election. They were like 38% Republican and like 28% Democrat. And their generic ballot was 59R, 41D. Uh, I've been involved in a voter registration effort called the VEP. We've been below the radar for the last four years. We've added 500,000 additional Republicans to the rolls in Texas. And we don't register by party. So we have to do do some tricks to figure out whether or not they're Republicans before we go after them for registration. But, but uh, you know, the, the people that, we're, that are moving here, just like the people that are moving to Florida, are people saying, I want a state government that works with limited taxes, limited government, good schools, safe communities, and sensible leaders. And California, unfortunately, at this point, doesn't have that. Well, and just and just to go back to the you know the question like who wins if it is if it's you know Governor Haley you know uh, versus Governor Newsom, Governor Haley has as strong a record as Newsom has a weak record. I would say you know in terms of her leadership in South Carolina, but also her performance that I got to observe directly when she was ambassador to the United Nations, she did a phenomenal job. I mean, uh, it's a it's a really not well known story that she got through really four rounds of unprecedented sanctions. Uh, against North Korea uh, with a security council that had, you know, Russia and China sitting on it. And and she did that, I think, in large measure by force of personality. Yeah. I saw that as governor of, of South Carolina. Uh, uh, in 2010, I was the speaker at the Silver Elephant Ball, which may sound like a crazy event, and it is. But Ronald Reagan spoke there. 41 spoke there. It's the big South Carolina Republican fundraising dinner. And I was the speaker that year. And I was sitting at the head table, which is a round table in the middle of the room. Uh, And I was sitting next to the then governor, Mark Sanford, who just come off the Appalachia Trail, if you get my drift. (laughs) Nobody wanted to come and talk to that guy. So I'm sitting at the head table. Literally, there are empty seats on the uh, one side of me is one empty seat. On the other side of him are two empty seats because members of the host committee have disappeared rather than sit at the table with the governor. But I'm watching the lieutenant governor, the attorney general and an upstate congressman, all of whom are running for governor, sitting at their tables, waiting for people to come and kiss the ring. And, you know, they're just waiting. South Carolina politics is sort of like. England in the 15th century, you know, it's the duchy of the PD and the the, the royal principality of the up, up country and so forth. And so they were all coming to, you know, everybody was going by to pay their respects. Doors blow open at the end of the room. In walks this tall, statuesque, three-term state legislator who works every single table, particularly the table of her three opponents. And I'm I'm seeing energy and enthusiasm. She's pinching their cheeks. She's you can tell she's undoing everything she can to unsettle them. I'm thinking she's going to kick their ass, and she did. 
Well, what you're, what you're giving us hope for is a principled discussion of what's going on. I don't think the average person in the country knows just how broken things are in California. And if she can have a really principled political debate, it may be back to Lincoln Douglas if, if those yeah. two go at it. And I think we'll get a preview. I'm looking forward to the DeSantis Newsom debate and see gonna... if that is a, a good high level debate about policies and, and, and just what works and what don't. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm looking forward to that. I think that's going to be a great discussion. Uh, and, and look, uh, DeSantis has a role to play in this, too. I'm, I think there is an advantage to doing the full Grassley. And I do think there's an advantage of having a gigantic neighbor to neighbor program like he's got with its identifying and canvassing people. Uh, and frankly, it's advantageous uh, to, to the anti-Trump faction that there be two people in the state who are getting votes, one who's going to get more of the suburban you know, sort of traditional Republican, uh, Iowa, sort of moderate conservative vote, and another one who's going to do well among the evangelicals and the more Trumpian element that's tired of Trump. And that that describes the two universes of DeSantis on the uh, the latter and the former is 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 Haley. But but look, it's a long shot. But I, but there's still you know there's there, we've got a weird politics and we've got two very idiosyncratic states at the beginning of this who've shown a willingness to to. Uh, to confound the conventional wisdom. Can I just throw a question in that's kind of a John question? I, I keep asking myself about the economy because there's, it seems to me a decent chance that the economy feels quite a bit worse next year. I'm not going to predict a recession. I think everybody's kind of got scared of doing that, but it's going to feel worse uh, for sure. And I'm struck when I look at the polling, where Trump is in a strong position is, is on the economy. People have good memories of the Trump economy, and they're very disgusted with the Biden economy, even though objectively it's quite strong. It, it, the polling for Biden and the economy is astonishingly bad. And I keep asking myself if maybe Nikki Haley's problem is, is memories of the Trump economy. The worse things get for the economy, the more people will say, you know what, say what you like about Trump. He delivered. There was no inflation. Was full employment is a great economy. Is that, do you think, I'm seeing that as an important issue to voters. Is that going to become, a, if that's a dominant issue by middle of next, next year, does that help Trump? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you can answer that if you like. I, I think you're right that in a, particularly in a general election, this generalized sense that things were better for people in their lives in 2020, 2019, 2018, 2017 is powerful. And, and, and Biden has made it worse by talking about how good things are. Yeah. Look, over, over, overlapping everything, overshadowing everything is the reality of people's lives, which is since he became president, prices have gone up 18% and median household income has dropped 3%. So the, people are walking into the grocery store or walking into the, the closing store to buy clothes for the kids or picking up presents for Christmas and seeing a gap of, you know, of 20%. Things are 21% more expensive uh, combined with inflation and decline than they were you know, three and a half years ago. And that's not going away. And it's going to take some time before we sort of get adjusted to that new reality. And I, so I think it's going to be an advantage for him in a general election. And, and I think to some degree, it's an advantage for him in a primary. But I will say this, if you take a look at the general election, like, the you know, there was the, I think it was the uh, Washington Post poll, but I may be wrong about that. Biden in the, uh, Trump in the battleground states is like two points ahead of uh, Trump. DeSantis is four points ahead of Trump excuse me, of Biden. Uh, Haley is eight points ahead of Biden. And the generic Republican is 16 points ahead. That says to me that the more that some, whichever party figures out it's the time to nominate a new face is going to get an advantage. If the Democrats nominate a new face, 
There's going to be a certain way that they can run against Trump. If the Republicans nominate a new face, there's a certain way that they're going to be able to run against Biden, which is going to be stronger in, for either party than if they went with the front runner today. But I mean, I was blown away by those numbers. I mean, what do we know about Nikki Haley? You know, McMaster knows a lot, but we know as a people about this much and we know this much about Trump. And yet she is like 18, eight points ahead. And the generic Republican, just what people think that they think they know about what a Republican stands for is eight, is 16 points better than Biden. My God, he's in terrible shape. I want to take it back to 1968 in this regard, Carl. It's the last election in which a third party candidate won a state. George Wallace managed to win five of them. I'd like to get your thoughts on RFK Jr. and what potency you see there, but also the no labels movement in this talk now about maybe a mansion Romney fusion ticket. Yeah. Uh, so look, a th third party candidate is not going to win the election, but they're going to determine the outcome of the election. Take 2016, uh, the uh, uh, Jill Stein of the Green Party, her votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, each of those states is bigger than the losing margin of Hillary Clinton. Right. And in 2020, Joe Jerkinson, I defy you to tell me what she does for a living. Uh, is uh, got more votes uh, in Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin than the losing margin of Donald Trump. And the answer is she is a lecturer in psychology at Clemson University. So yes, a third party candidate, RFK, is going you know, to going to play you know uh, among Democrats and Republicans. He's going to take sort of environmental extremists and Kennedy fanatics from the Democrats and anti-vaxxers from the Republicans. Cornell West is going to hurt among young people and some elements of the black community, going to hurt the Democrats. The Jill Stein is going to hurt among environmentalists. The Libertarian is going to hurt among Republicans. The question is going to be, if no labels gets involved, do they have a ticket that appeals more to Republican voters or Democrat voters? I don't think it's going to be Joe Manchin. No. I don't think it's going to be Mitt Romney because both of those would be inclined to probably, uh, you know, Manchin, I'm not certain, has much appeal outside of West Virginia anymore, not after voting for uh, for the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. But if they nominated, and he's not going to run, but if they nominated Mitch Daniels, they would hurt through, They would hurt whoever the Republican nominee is more than the Democrats, particularly if it were Trump, because you'd have a traditional Reaganite Republican that they could vote for. But, but you're, you know, it, this is all going to play out based on who the two parties nominate. If you had to bet today, you'd bet on the front runners, but I'd take the field against them, which means the uh, nature of who these third party candidates is, or the nature of who they are in the summer of 2024 and the fall of 2024 could have really consequential effects for one party or the other. Now, so th this has all gone too optimistic for me. So I want to ask the grumpy question, then I'll then HR can ask the optimistic question at the end. Uh, you're, you're painting a picture where, you know, we have an election, we play by the rules, somebody's elected, we all sing Kumbaya and go home. But uh, I'm worried that that's not at all what's going to happen. Uh, both parties have set up now an, an institutions waiting to declare the election illegitimate and all sorts of horrible things that follow from telling everyone this election is illegitimate. Um, now, with your knowledge of, of history and how things work, um, you know, we'll have a tight election. First thing that's going to happen, everything's going to be litigated. Every smudged ballot, it's, and God forbid that goes to the Supreme Court and that gets decided again by the Supreme Court. If that doesn't work, we're into the Electoral College and the third party could split the Electoral College. So now the Electoral College is going to come up with someone who didn't have a majority of the electoral votes protest in the street. 
Suppose that doesn't work. We go to the House of Representatives, where a tiny, slim majority of the Republicans, maybe after 250 ballots, can choose somebody. Maybe they can't. I can just imagine how legitimate that's going to feel to the Democrats. Uh, I worry worry about this whole thing falling apart. And then after that, once the once this process has been declaimed illegitimate by everybody, uh, you know, people take the branches of government they control, people take the states they control, and all, and and all holy heck breaks loose. Uh, so you know how this process works. You know how the history of contentious times, the 19th century, have worked. Am I right to be totally worried about this, or do you think we'll all sing kumbaya in a year and a half? Yeah, we won't be singing kumbaya, and but but I'm, I'm, I think I'm more concerned than I am worried. I do think we need to hold people's feet to the fire in the summer and early fall of 2024. That is to say, we need to say, if you got a complaint about the process, show up in court and make your complaint. Because remember, you know, it's like, oh, people were stealing absentee um, uh, mail-in ballots. Well, we heard about that, that that after the election, not d- before the election. And so we ought to be saying to people, if you got a complaint, you got to go to court and validate it before the election. Uh, and then second of all, states have got to be aware that they need to have processes in place that are transparent and supportable and quick. Because one of the things that draws this out is when it takes too long to count the votes in Pennsylvania or New York or California. And, uh, you know, they need to everybody needs to worry about that. And third, we, we need to have, be in a place where people are not allowed to stand up and say things like they said last time around. Oh, 22,000 dead people voted in Nevada. Well, prove it. There were only two. Now, if it does go to the Electoral College, I don't think a third party candidate's going to get any votes in the Electoral College. I don't see anybody who's strong enough to be like George Wallace with an explicitly racist appeal to five southern states in 1968. On the other hand, uh, if it does end up going to the House because not enough, you know, there nobody has majority in the Electoral College, that is a problem because Republicans are likely to carry, you know, more Wyomings and Montanas and Idahos and and uh, North and South Dakotas, the Democrats are to carry Rhode Island and Massachusetts and so forth. There are more Republican states than there are Democratic states. But I don't see us getting there. I think this thing could be at a place where there are election challenges and claims that, that close elections were stolen. But on the other hand, I think we know where those are going to be. And I suspect that the secretaries of state and the governors of you know Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania are paying a lot of attention to what needs to be done with the election machinery to, to get a quick and accurate vote that's transparent and supportable. Hey, hey I've just got to recommend some uh, theme music to go along with John's question and your answer by a great musician who's under underrated, Sean Mullins, who has a great song, All In My Head. And, and the lyrics are, are something like, is it all in my head? Could everything be all right without me knowing? So maybe that's maybe that's the case. I hope it is. <laughs> well, is it time to bring up Grover? Because, uh, Carl, you're an authority on, on the late 19th century, and I've been saying for some time to my concerned European friends, American politics just has gone back to its 19th century self. It was a contact sport in the 19th century and is again now. Don't be surprised. Uh, and if you go back to what 1892 was that the last time somebody managed two non-consecutive terms as president grover cleveland carl you have a very interesting story about what that then led to and i wonder if we can kind of tease out the analogy if if trump were to do it he he were to be the second only the second president of two non-consecutive terms what do you think the consequences would be and is there anything we can learn from the 1890s 
Well, uh, Trump, I'm not, I'm, the analogies may break down. Grover Cleveland gets reelected in large part because his successor, Benjamin Harrison, whom he lost to in 88 and beats in 92, turns out to be a really dislikable figure. And, uh, you know, he's, not, he's acerbic and he's dry, he doesn't connect well with the American people. And then the Republicans in the House of Representatives have a very narrow majority, and they use that majority to achieve their goals. But the goals are at odds with the American people. They, they pass a billion-dollar budget for the first time, and uh, they're called the billion-dollar co- uh, Congress. And the Speaker of the House, Thomas Brackett Reed, uh, responds to the criticism by saying we're a billion-dollar country. But people thought we, you know, that, that Harrison was out of touch. Um, that he was, and then the Solid South came back and said, you know, we're better off with Grover Cleveland in there, and uh, we'll we'll provide the majority, and he can swing back a couple of these key battleground states of New York and Indiana and so forth. But then it turns south because the Democratic Party turns on itself. There's a terrible uh, economic calamity in 1893. And uh, the Democratic Party divides over the question of uh, should we be on a gold standard or a silver standard? Uh, the Democrat Party has an insurgent organization that pops up inside it, the Silver Men, led by a couple of senators from the South, that literally takes over the Democratic Party. And by 1896, basically, state convention after state convention passes resolutions condemning uh, the incumbent Democratic president and his policies. And then goes to the National Convention and nominates a silver man who literally says, "Okay, we're no longer responsible to the party, the Democratic Party, for the economic difficulties of the country because uh, the Democratic president has pursued Republican policies. So not exactly the same, but it does give rise to the populism of William Jennings Bryan, a populist to the left, as opposed to a populist to the right. But uh, uh, Grover Cleveland won in part because his predecessor, failed to get, gain the confidence in the American people and the Congress uh, turned out uh, to be an utter disaster and uh, and, and uh, led by his led by the, the party of the president. So it's not exactly analogous, but some of those conditions are around today an unpopular, an unpopular Congress. I, I could imagine if Trump were to be reelected. I don't know what John thinks about this, but it feels as if some kind of monetary problem is a coming given the completely unsustainable fiscal policy we're pursuing which Donald Trump would certainly do nothing to address. So I, ca- I keep coming back to the question of whether the, the consequences of a second Trump term might be as unintended as the consequences of a second Cleveland term, which ultimately to put the Democrats out of government for, I don't know how many elections. Uh, but 32 it's, it's, years. It yeah. ushered in the defeat of the defeat of Brian in 1896 ushers in a 32 or 36 year period of Republican dominance broken only by the division within the party in 1912. I mean, the only reason the Democrats win the presidency in 1912 is that that Theodore Roosevelt splits the Republican Party. So if if that's what you were getting at, yeah, absolutely. Seems like it's really quite dangerous for Republicans to risk a second Trump term. Added to which, can I ask you a final question before we're out of time? If he gets reelected, surely the point is you only get two years. Your second term is like you're kind of lame duck for half of it. So I think people underestimate the extent to which Trump would would only really have two years to do terribly much before he was in the lame duck situation. Would that would that apply? Well, I think it would. In fact, I, I might suggest maybe less than two years because if if Trump is likely to face a Democratic House of Representatives and a Republican Senate. Uh, and the, the Republican Senate is not 
is going to have a significant number of Republicans who are not going to who are going to be concerned about the fiscal posture of the country, who recognize that the hospital trust fund of Medicare is going bankrupt in a matter of years and Social Security a couple of years after that. So, yeah, I, I, it would be an, I, I think you become a lame duck quicker. There may be executive actions that he can take, but I think he would face a very uncomfortable Congress where the where look the likelihood of the House being remaining Republican, unless there's a huge shift uh, in the next couple of years, uh, in the next couple of months, I, I think we're likely to face a, a Republican Senate and a Democratic House and a Republican Senate only because this. The Democrats have three senators up next year in states that Donald Trump carried, and and the Republicans have got a, a good may have good candidates in a couple of other states. But for the moment, I I don't see a big difference on fiscal matters. Uh, Trump wants to protect his industries. The Democrats want to keep uh, Chinese electric cars out, uh, and and each wants to subsidize their own things. And both are going to have to come to Jesus when the debt finally uh, hits them. But I, I want to ask you, uh, Carl. Um, there's the elephant in the room we're not talking about. Uh, 92 indictments. Uh, this is completely unusual. Uh, what I see of the polling is a lot of the support for Trump is not, oh, here's a sensible man with the policies I want, but oh my God, how unfair that they're going after him for everything from jaywalking to unused parking tickets. We may disagree about the severity, but this is how people feel. And a lot of the support is, you know, they see the FBI, the Department of Justice is politicized going after him. They see censorship on the internet. Um, they, you know, they, they, so there's a, a sort of sympathy vote for Trump going on with this stuff. How does that play out? What happens if, when Trump, had, one out of 92 is certainly going to convict him? Is this going to be like Chicago, where we elect people to, to uh, the presidency from jail? Uh, how does that figure into your thinking? Yeah. I think you're right that it's brought him a sympathy, but it's also brought this foreboding sense that, that he may be, they may have too much baggage. I think the key is going to be the reaction to the first guilty verdict, which looks like it may be the, the first yeah. case that will be resolved will be the New York business um, business dealings. And if people say, you know, you know what, I, it was unfair, but, you know, it's baggage and we, our country is in too grave a position to allow us to have that as a risk. But, uh, you know, the, the, the one case that I think he's absolutely got a huge exposure on is the classified documents case. And that thing may not come to come to resolution until either late in the campaign or maybe until after the campaign is over. But, but yeah, that yeah. one com comes late. That's the serious one. If he's if he's guilty on 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 his business dealings. Oh, a real estate developer in New York overstated the value of his properties and, and lied on form 823-3. I'm not sure voters are going to get excited about that yeah. one. The, the second case that's likely to come to resolution or may come to resolution is the Fulton County case and where he's got uh, lots of his former lawyers have now pled now cut mm -hmm. deals. And I think that's a problem. But look, we we don't know. Who would have thought before this all began that 91 cases would see the guy move up and the polls not move down? But I do sense out there and people are sort of nervous about it. And yes, they believe it's unfair. And yes, they believe that the, that the power of the government has been used against a political opponent. But on the other hand, I think they also are sort of uh, coming to a conclusion, boy, he's got a lot of baggage. And you'll because notice- the most well, sympathetic this, is a, this is an argument that DeSantis to uh, is explicitly making and to a lesser extent Haley are making in Iowa. You know, Carl, just to, to that point, I mean, the juxtaposition of the horrible attacks of October 7th and and Trump's statements on that day and around that day about, you know, about his problems. You know, I, I think, you know, people have to come to the conclusion that that maybe he's a bit self-absorbed, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, really? as, well, as well as as well as preoccupied. Really? 
Yeah. You think? You think? Uh, yeah. I mean, I suspect anybody who worked in the White House got, saw how preoccupied he was with self in ordinary times. But yeah, now I can just, I mean, you see it in his speeches. These speeches, yeah. I have to sort of watch them in order to comment. And oh my God, I mean, these are self absorbed. You know, I'm pre being persecuted. This is all about me. And it's not about the country. It's about settling scores with, you know, the vermin on the other side. All Anybody who's not for him has is, is got, you know, a, a, a great number of, uh, you know, insults that he addresses them by. But these are not uplifting speeches. These are rage and anger and uh, distrust and, uh, you know, a sense of, uh, you know, pity self-pity that I'm being treated this way and it's because I represent you and it's not a very pleasant sight. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. This is going to be, this is why, it, why I called it a dumpster fire. I mean, this thing, if it is Biden versus Trump, we're going to see this. Each side is going to have some enormous vulnerabilities that are going to be on display. And each side is going to spend more time, you know, unleashing tactical nuclear battlefield weapons against each other than they are articulating what they intend to do over the next four years. Well, Carl, you've been more than generous with your time. We have to go. But I would like to slip in one quick question before we go. We've talked about so many variables. This kind of reminds me of Donald Rumsfeld, your old sidekick in the Bush administration, famously saying what? Unknown unknowns. But there are also unknown unknowns. So of everything we've talked about today, what is the most important unknown unknown less than a year from the election? Well, who are the two parties nominees going to be? Whichever party figures out a fresh face is to their advantage and acts on it is going to have a is going to have a big advantage in the election. And uh, we may not know that until August when the Democrats meet in, in Chicago or July when the Republicans meet in Milwaukee. Uh, weird things can happen and likely will in this election. And incidentally, <laughs> right over there, right over there, Rumsfeld and I shared something in common. We use stand up desks. One day I walked into my office in the West Wing and there is the Secretary of Defense eyeing my stand-up desk. Mine is bigger than his. Well, they've, they've figured it out. The curious thing is their inability to act on what everybody in the parties knows to be true. Yeah, exactly. Both parties are that broken and the party leadership uh, the, the, is so weak that uh, you know individuals can sort of impose their will upon it. We have two men who are being, in my opinion, both uh, very... Um, greedy and personally, you know, self-centered in deciding what is best for the country. One, one says, I've got to, I've got to run in order to, to wash away the, the, uh, the ill effect of having lost the last election. And the other one says, I'm enjoying my life in uh, the Oval Office so much. I'm willing to put our country at risk by uh, having me, uh, you know, to continue to decline and maybe even die in my second term and surrender my powers to a completely incompetent vice president. Okay. Carl, thanks for coming on, Goodfellas. Uh, come back soon. Let's see how this plays out. You bet. Thanks for having me on. Carl, great seeing you. We move on to our B block, and we're going to talk today about the situation in the Middle East. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're recording this on Monday the 27th, and so the truce will go on for a couple more days. But what I want to ask the three of you is this, what happens after the truce ends? And let's look at this with the principles involved here. I want to know what's next for Israel, what's next for Hamas, what's next for the U.S., and what's next for Iran and its various proxies, such as the Houthis, who seem to be in the news every day doing something like firing missiles and taking ships in the Persian Gulf. HR, why don't you start this, and why don't you talk about what's next for Israel, especially what you think they'll do militarily? Well, it's going to be a resumption of the offensive around Gaza, in Gaza, 
uh, and and uh, the tasks are incomplete, which is the destruction of the organization and its infrastructure. And and by you know the the U.S. Department of Defense definition of destruction, that means that Hamas can no longer conduct operations against Israel without complete reconstitution. What that's going to take are continued efforts to reduce the infrastructure in northern Gaza, but to at least conduct raids uh, to capture or kill Hamas leaders who have left northern Gaza and, and are hiding in, in southern Gaza. Uh, I think it's going to be important uh, during this next phase of the operation to provide significant humanitarian assistance uh, to to reduce you know the the suffering of the Palestinians who are not you know part of a uh, part of Hamas uh, and, and of course you know the operation is going to continue I think for you know for weeks uh, if not months to to be able to um, to you know to 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 regain control of all the all the hostages who are not released uh, in these next couple of rounds uh, and. Uh, and then to complete the destruction of Hamas. But the other the other possibilities, you know, are, and I'd like to hear what the whole team thinks about this, is that this could escalate uh, to a much a much broader conflict. It already is a much broader conflict. You mentioned the Houthis, but also the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps of Iran is mobilizing its militias and proxy forces across the region for multiple attacks on U.S. forces and, and, and facilities, but also to open other fronts uh, against Israel from the West Bank, uh, to to the Golan Heights in the border with Syria to southern Lebanon, so I I, I can foresee uh, Bill a, a a scenario in which there are a series of, of escalating attacks uh, that ultimately compel the Biden administration to go after Iran's terrorist network more broadly in the region and maybe even begin to act like we know what the return address is, and that return address is is obviously Tehran. Mm-hmm. Neil. Well, I think Hamas is going to be destroyed uh, eventually, despite the pressure on Israel uh, to cease fire, uh, despite the reluctance of the Biden administration to exert real pressure uh, on Iran. But when Hamas is destroyed, act two of the drama will be whether or not Iran unleashes Hezbollah uh, from Lebanon because there's a whole bigger war that could yet happen, uh, to say nothing of some of the other forces that are potentially threatening Israel at the moment, uh, as well as attacking American forces. Really, the strangest thing about all of this, in my view, has been the hesitancy of the United States to state publicly what Iran is risking in unleashing its proxies in the way that it has. Uh, against Israel. Uh, and I, I do think that this somewhat ambiguous uh, response has has created an extremely dangerous situation for Israel, where it, it, it loses legitimacy uh, in the eyes of international observers uh, for its just war against the terrorists who perpetrated the atrocities of October the 7th. But it also finds itself practically isolated because the United States' support is so ambivalent. So I'm quite concerned that this can get a lot worse. Uh, Maybe not until the new year. I have a sense that there'll be something of a lull. Uh, But I think if Hamas is really seen to be on the verge of of destruction, then Hezbollah will be unleashed and the war will in fact escalate. That's what I fear. John? Even getting to that point seems to me harder. Can Israel, you know, can you take two weeks off and then go back to 
uh, a, a serious war where the objective is annihilate Hamas. Um, Hamas still has hundreds of hostages and is obviously going to dribble them out. Uh, I was interested by the report that Netanyahu's original, his first instinct was, I'm sorry, the hostages are gone. We're going to do this to save Israel no matter what. Uh, but obviously, he, he isn't doing that and can't do that anymore. But I don't see uh, they, they're, they're, Hamas played the game brutally and well to have those hostages. The humanitarian assistance, I gather the way this works is Hamas doles it out. And if you want any humanitarian assistance, you better support Hamas. Even that is is fraught. Um, you know, my one hope here is that the Arab states have gotten really sick of Hamas. So we're not seeing any of that usual support for Hamas. But, um, you know, we're, we're back, we're at a stalemate of lack of will in Ukraine. And I worry that uh, it took about three weeks to get to a stalemate of lack of will in Israel. And, and will Israel be able to, even even without an invasion from the north or an explosion in the West Bank or, or uh, Iran setting something going, uh, will Israel will be able to get back going in the way that that goes after its fundamental war aim of destroying Hamas. Hamas is not going to say, "Well, we gave you the last, uh, we gave you the last hostage, so come destroy us now." That that's not the way this ends. HR. Yeah, I just say, I just say, just to just to qualify on on the humanitarian assistance, I think the Israelis have to bring it with them, and they've got to control it. I mean, I, I think that there's no way that uh, humanitarian assistance you can provide it with, you know, good faith to Hamas. They will they will control it. They'll use it for their own means and to and to you know to remain you know uh in power and so forth so um that, that's one aspect of the operation but i'll, I'll tell you john I, I think they're going to obviously go back on the offensive and what hasn't stopped is intelligence collection and analysis and i think that the release of the hostages was an opportunity probably to get a higher degree of clarity on where the hot where the hostages are being held and i think what you'll see when military operations resume uh, are, are probably raids to gain control of those areas where the hostages are being kept, uh, and then to, and then to operate you know out of those nodes, those areas that are that are then controlled, while they also hunt down Hamas leadership. There's also a multinational dimension to this, of course, involving the entire Iranian terrorist network, including Hezbollah, the proxy army in Syria, uh, elements of Hamas and, P and pa Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, in in the West Bank, but also there are those who are sitting in gutter. I mean, I I think that they are dead men walking. You know, uh, the 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 same the same thing with their financial enterprise uh, internationally. I mean, it's really important, I think, for the United States to escalate to go to go after that entire network alongside uh, the Israelis and 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 other other partners. The narrative that you hear, and 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 Neil was alluding to this, is that we're trying to prevent escalation. Well, I think as long as we're trying to prevent escalation. That Iran get Iran gets to escalate with impunity. Right. So I think what we have to do is stop these kind of signals and measured responses. When acts of war are committed against us, act like it and respond not proportionately, you know, but respond in a way that's overwhelming, that goes after really not only their will to continue uh, to to, conti to, to uh, continue these attacks, but also their capacity to do so by taking out. Uh, that that infrastructure that's that's important to them, including I would say, uh, the IRGC headquarters itself. So you're giving me some hope, HR, and I want to follow up on one thing you said. Uh, of course, the the um, the Israeli occupation in Gaza has been uh, pretty awful in terms of blowing up buildings and and number of civilians caught in the crossfire. 
Are, are you saying that given some uh, a, f- a few more days or maybe even weeks of the ceasefire, that they will be able to build up intelligence to do in southern Gaza a little more surgically what they need to do to know where exactly people are to, to get, get at tunnels without blowing up 10 buildings on top of the tunnels? Well, you know, I've heard a lot of inaccuracies about about the campaign in Gaza, saying that, you know, now that the ground offensive has begun, there are going to be more civilian casualties. Actually, the opposite is the case. Right. Ground forces can be more discriminate, especially those that are equipped with combined arms capabilities like the IDF is. I think people forget you know, we enabled a very light force to take over Raqqa. This is the, the SDF, right? The Syrian uh, Democratic Forces in in, uh, in northeastern Syria with our special operations forces, but also our air power, U.S., British, and French air power. In that small town, the estimates are now good estimates two years after the fact, the fact that 1,600 civilians were killed in, in taking Raqqa back from ISIS. Similar, similar figures in terms of 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 proportion of civilian casualties in Mosul. Why? Because of the almost exclusive reliance on artillery and air power. Once you get in, you know into you know, in, into the area and began to gain control of, of that terrain, get Hamas to to respond to you because now you're in control of uh, of portions of territory in Gaza that are of value to them. You get the upper hand and you can apply overwhelming firepower, but with discrimination. You know, and and uh, and and better effect in terms of killing the enemy, uh, but protecting civilians. You know, a tank round is pretty discriminate, right? A 500-pound bomb, not as discriminate. Can I add one final thought that that links up to what we were discussing earlier with with Carl? Uh, I've had a chance to speak to quite a few people from the Arab world in in the last few weeks. That's not so hard in London. Uh, it, it is interesting how much criticism I hear of the Biden administration, that there is no great love uh, felt for Iran uh, in the Gulf, uh, uh, where I think there's a frustration that what was going forward with the Abraham Accords has uh, has been derailed. Uh, I don't think that that derailing will be a permanent thing. The expectation is that a change of government in Washington will uh, put American policy back on a firmer footing. Uh, and I think it's important to notice how many uh, different international situations uh, around the world hinge on what will happen uh, next November. Uh, but there is there is great frustration with the way that the Biden administration has handled this uh, and no great enthusiasm for the benefits that have been reaped by Iran. And it's important to know that. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, wrap up the segment. I'd like to ask a two-part question. The first question, HR, you talked about uh, Hamas leadership ensconced in uh, Qatar. Uh, at what point do you think Israel will do something along the lines of an Entebbe raid and go into Qatar and try to take out the leadership? Do you see that happening? And then secondly, Neil, you talked at the beginning of the segment about the destruction of Hamas. How do you exactly destroy Hamas besides killing all the militants? In other words, how do you snuff out the sentiment, the emotion that drives it? HR, why don't you go first? Well, it's going to be more subtle than an Entebbe type raid uh, against uh, against Hamas leaders broadly, you know. And maybe the, you know, I don't think you'd start with Hania, for example, but you would start with those that are that are more closely affiliated with, you know, the, the terrorist organization, the, mm-hmm. the direct action against against the Israelis that that was taken, uh, the horrible crimes that were committed against Israelis on on October seventh. But I think, but I think overall, there's going to be a determination over time uh, to hunt down to hunt down all of them. You know, I mean, this was this was a 
you know, th this was a, a massacre uh, that demands that kind of a response, I think, just like, you know, it, it take up, took us, you know, 20 years to hunt down some perpetrators of, of the, the attack on the USS Cole, for example. But right. we didn't give up on that, you know, and, and I don't think the Israelis will give up on it. The destruction of the organization uh, is, is can, can happen physically and financially initially. But really what you're getting at is, is the is the is the importance of separating uh, these terrorist organizations from sources of ideological support. And I think what's immensely important is to trace the grievances of the Palestinian population back to Hamas back to the organization that diverted all of the assistance that could have improved Palestinians' quality of life over so many years and diverted it into that terrorist infrastructure, back to the organization that engages in child abuse on a massive scale, fomenting hatred, brainwashing young people, and sending them to early deaths uh, as, as they after they dehumanize them uh, and use that hatred to justify in their minds you know, violence against innocence. So I think it's immensely important to have, as you're alluding to, Bill, you know, an educational and informational dimension mm -hmm. to this effort to defeat Hamas. Just as you know, after September 11th, uh, there was you know a, a great emphasis on on isolating jihadist terrorists from from sources of, of ideological support associated with you know the the Qutbist uh, and 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 Salafi uh, you know jihadist or Takfirin uh, you know branches of of you know, perversions I, I would say of, of Islam. Mm -hmm. Neil? Well, it seems to me that the ultimate goal of organizations like Hamas, and indeed their Iranian sponsors, is to destroy Israel, to perpetrate a second Holocaust. That's really their objective. And October 7th was like a, an illustration of how that second Holocaust would happen, because there were scenes worthy uh, of the Holocaust played out, hideous scenes of uh, unbelievably sadistic violence, including sexual violence. And uh, I don't know about you, but I don't hear much these days about the National Socialist German Workers' Party. That was destroyed. Mm -hmm. You can destroy that kind of organization. You can wipe it out. I don't know about UHR, but I don't hear much about ISIS anymore. So Hamas has to be destroyed. That's what's got to happen. But that does lead to the troublesome long-run question. Uh, where are we going at the end of this? I, I hope we can all decide that the two-state solution that has been the dream of my entire lifetime of this, where one of PLO or Hamas gets to take over and will suddenly sing, I guess I'm using the kumbaya metaphor too much that today, but will suddenly uh, agree to peacefully live alongside Israel. Uh, that That is completely dead. So where are we going instead? Uh, um, nobody else wants to run the place. Uh, Israeli military occupation uh, doesn't seem like a good long-run solution, uh, and that seems still to be, and uh, you know, quite quite the open question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's just just quickly to that, John. I mean, there has to be a period of of Israeli occupation. Uh, that, I mean, yeah. there, there's because Hamas will just well, after, and after World War II. I'm sorry, you guys brought up World War II. How do we yeah. get rid of that? The right. There just has yeah, to be the military I mean, occupation for about ten years. I mean, the, the Israelis have no option. But the, what what we I, I know what Secretary Blinken is trying to do, and I hope he's successful in doing so, is to is to garner support for a peace enforcement force. That's what's going to be necessary. Not some weak kind of unifil force like you see in southern Lebanon, but a force that has offensive capability to go after terrorists when they try to recede back into back into into Gaza. 
And that force has got to have a degree of legitimacy with the Palestinian population. And then over time, right? I mean, if there is going to be some hope, some glimmer of some uh, of some two-state solution in the future, there has to be a legitimate, a, a legitimate Palestinian political authority uh, that that buys into that to that solution and is not like Hamas is or or PIJ is uh, committed to the destruction of, of of Israel and as and as Neil alluded to. Uh, determined to kill all the Jews in the second Holocaust. So, you know, the, the, you know, there's been a lot of blame and rightfully so placed on, you know, certain uh, elements of the Israeli population and 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 the ultra-conservative and ultra-Orthodox parties with these unauthorized uh, settlements in, in the West Bank and the degree to which those have diminished yeah. uh, the viability of a two-state solution. Hey, but how about declaring your, your dedication to the destruction of Israel? That doesn't sound like that's very supportive of a two-state solution. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of work to be done, obviously, on both sides, and it's mainly political work to help em emerge from this some form of leadership uh, that could be committed to some, you know, some type of, of, of two-state solution in the future. I'll tell you, what is undervalued is is the work that uh, that, that Jason Greenblatt uh, and and Jared Kushner did in the Trump administration. It was much pilloried, but you know what? The proposal they came up with was the proposal that would at least be kind of acceptable, right, to, 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 to Israelis. That's now something maybe to pull out and 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 sh and show to the Palestinians and say, okay, you know, do you think what what do you prefer? Do you prefer what's going on in Gaza right now? Or do you prefer this? And so I, I think that there is a choice to be made whether leadership can emerge that can maybe seize on that on on, on that choice uh, remains to be seen yeah because that's where we were going slowly but surely uh pro greater prosperity greater freedom bit by bit more jobs in israel more businesses more stuff goes in and out things get bit by bit better uh hopefully governance gets bit by bit better and and we'll finalize who gets a state after we're living alongside each other a little more peacefully i hope we can get back to that that vision Hey, this is hard for this is hard for the Israelis to do, obviously. And I'm not saying that this is completely analogous, but but when we when we evacuated the civilians out of the city of Talafer and absolutely destroyed uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq there in what was their training and support base, uh, we 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 endeavored to draw a very strong cont contrast between what the city looked like and what life was like. It was hellish under Al Qaeda's control, and what it was like after we. You know, we alongside courageous Iraqis liberated that city. And so we had just we had a huge information campaign with just the Arabic word choose on it and then and then distributed everything that you could think of in terms of the contrast between the marketplace that was blown up. And now the marketplace that was open, the schools that were that were turned into terrorist training facilities and ID factories. And now the schools back open, you know, and then we had there's just you know everything that we could think of, you know, soccer balls and so forth. Just had the word choose on it, as well as those billboards and posters, and 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 you know, it, it got to the population, and they realized they had a stake in preventing Al Qaeda from coming back. And you know, they'll try to come back. Hamas will try to come back. But you know, I knew that we had won when one of our UAVs one night, you know, saw so it picked up a a, a terrorist trying to put in an IED. And an elderly woman came out with a broomstick and started beating him over the shoulders with a broomstick. I mean, then I know, okay, hey, I think we're, I think I think we have a, a enduring security here. Okay, broomsticks, broomsticks, and we're going to leave it there for this conversation, gentlemen. Good talk, and we now move on to the lightning round. Lightning. 
Okay, first lightning round question. Uh, this is in Europe. Addressing the G20 leaders for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine, Vladimir Putin said, and I quote, we should think about how to stop this tragedy. Neil, what's he up to? Oh, he's taking advantage of the fact that he knows the Biden administration wants a negotiation. Uh, now that the Ukrainian counteroffensive clearly has not achieved its objective, and he knows that if he can portray Zelensky as the obstacle to peace, then he might get to keep quite a big slice of Ukraine. Easy. Okay. John Cochran, I turn to you with a lightning round question. This is a Napoleon parallel. I saw Napoleon in the theater last week, by the way. I don't know if you guys have seen it yet. Uh, it was okay. Mix, we could talk about that in a future show. Here's a Napoleon parallel. After a very brief exile, Sam Altman is back as chief executive of OpenAI. John, what does this say about the state of the AI industry? Ah, uh, it says a lot about crazy governance of nonprofit versus profit boards. Uh, it says a lot about this sort of effective altruism uh, craziness, which has inflected a lot of the uh, tech industry. Uh, talking to some tech friends about um, sort of the silly things that said around there, and uh, you know, ultimately, it looks like this technology will get into the hands of uh, people who know how to use it. <laughs> Neil is Altman Napoleon. No, Elon is Napoleon. Um, I mean, I don't think Altman's the most important person in AI. He's not even actually a data scientist. Uh, but he saw the opportunity that large language models uh, presented, and uh, he's picked it up and run with it. I think this whole battle was partly a product of the weird structure of corporate governance that emerged when the nonprofit had to become a profit to get all that money from Microsoft. But there was also some internal dispute about the speed at which he wanted to proceed. Uh, the main major winner is actually Microsoft, uh, which now has uh, a stronger position uh, than it had before. I still worry about where this goes. I still, I still ask myself: Is this is this like the Manhattan Project with you know with with the governance of uh, a, a, a bunch of uh, railroads in the nineteenth century? I'm uneasy about that, but I, I can't really define what we can do better. At this point, there are so many genies out of so many bottles in the AI competition. There's a race that's going on between the major tech companies and between the US and China. It probably doesn't hugely matter how open AI is governed. That's probably not the key issue here. Okay. Yeah, and this is software can be copied once you've invented it. There's no big single secret like there is with, with atomic bombs. Uh, and the idea that that we are going to gently guide this into some future, knowing exactly what the problems are, is is crazy. This is a very competitive field. Hundreds of large language models out there. Uh, it doesn't matter what you do with any particular one of them. Now, HR, I turn to you and let's go back to Europe. Gert Wilders and his Freedom Party have won the largest number of votes in the seats in the Dutch national election. About Mr. Wilders, he is vocally anti-EU. He's vowed to halt all immigration into his country, and he does not want to provide arms to Ukraine. This comes at the same time, HR, that uh, in Germany, the far-right AFD party is polling higher than the three parties currently governing Germany. Is this coincidence or a trend? It's a trend. You, know, you could add in the Sl Slovakia election recently as well. And I think it's really important to understand, you know, kind of the popular sentiment that gives rise to these types of political leaders and victors in these elections, but also to understand kind of the, the role that Russia is playing uh, in supporting these far right as far as far left parties in an attempt to polarize these countries and 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 reduce their confidence, you know, in who they are as a people and in their democratic processes and institutions. 
I mean, there, there are real problems, you know, that, that are need that need to be addressed in the area of immigration and migration, for example, though, in Denmark and more broadly in Europe and heck in our country. So it's important to understand, you know, where these politicians come from, because they don't come out of thin air. They come from popular sentiment associated with with, uh, you know, with, with uh, dissatisfaction. Uh, but also there there is a foreign role being played by by the Kremlin uh, in Europe, for sure. And the Bulgarian election is going to be next next year, too. A little bit of lightning. I, I, I've met Hert Wilders. Of course, I am. My wife uh, knows him quite well. I think he gets very badly misrepresented uh, because it's typical for the New York Times to categorize all of these people as, as dangerous far-right individuals. But Hert Wilders just articulates what a very substantial part of the Dutch electorate has felt for many years. There's too much immigration and it has adverse consequences. And this, this is what the mainstream parties don't say. They said the same thing about Georgia Maloney as well, too. And exactly, and, and she's turned out to be very effective. I think everyone be- disparages these guys by saying far right, far right, far right. But yeah. you know, we're supposed to love democracy. These people are being elected by voters. What's on those voters' minds? And it's not so much quantity of immigration; it's unassimilated immigration. It's immigrants that then turn out in the streets for violently anti-Semitic protests, to, and you know, talk about not adopting the values of your home country. And they're saying, "What the hell is going wrong here?" And I think, you know, you, you should listen to the Millet just won, the, the slightly eccentric libertarian just won in Argentina. Well, he too gets limp. Far right, far right, far right. Maybe we should listen to what people are saying. John, I was about to ask you about Argentina. Tell us about Millet and your thoughts on that, because this has a very interesting fiscal angle to it. Well, of course, I, I love the concept that Argentina should use the U.S. dollar uh, as a great way to pre-commit against its fiscal problems. Um, so, and we're, we are finally seeing a, a country, Argentina used to be as rich as the U.S. It's one of the disasters of the 20th century that it stopped growing and that it's been continually chaotic uh, ever since. So here comes a guy who's a little bit eccentric personally. He's got some interesting libertarian policies. He he talks like an economist. You can tell nobody's writing his speeches but himself. Uh, and uh, and and wants to use the U.S. dollar and instead of one more round of IMF and God knows what. Uh, so I, I wish him luck. It'll be very fun to watch. Okay. A final question for the panel. The Rolling Stones have announced their North American tour dates for 2024. The tour is sponsored by AARP. That is formerly the American Association of Retired Persons. All kidding aside about geriatrics, gentlemen, are the Rolling Stones overrated? No, they're the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Really, the greatest. Always have been, always will be. Yes, the Beatles were better. No, Keith Richards is the greatest rock and roll guitarist. Mick Jagger, the greatest rock and roll singer. They're old enough to run for president, that's for sure. But no one will ever be as good at at rock and roll as the Stones at their best. On that, I'm uncompromising. (laughs) HR? I agree. I mean, you can't listen to the Hot Rocks album, you know, and not come away thinking, okay, this is an extraordinary band. And, and you know what I, I love about them is the, the influence of blues. You know, some people criticize them because they said they ripped a, they ripped a lot of their songs off you know, of, of old old blues musicians. But they did take their name from a Muddy Waters song, and and uh, you can feel that you can feel the blues infused through their music in a way that you don't you don't hear that uh, with the Beatles. Well, the Stones may be old, but the Beatles have now perfected coming back from the dead via AI. So there's still a chance for our, our discussion to continue. <laughs> and we will have another discussion uh, for our viewers. You should know we have one more episode left in 2023. You do not want to miss it because we will have as our guest the one and only the incomparable Barry Weiss.
And how do you make sure you don't miss the episode? Subscribe to our show. And if you subscribe to us, do us a favor. Leave a few nice comments, rate, review us, give us some stars, help us deal with that crazy little algorithm thing on YouTube. On behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, our guest today, Carl Rowe, we hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll see you back here in a couple of weeks. Until then, take care. And again, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds. So